Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Our next case is State versus Killette, and I'll note that Justice Berger is recused. We'll hear from the appellant. Good afternoon. May it please the court, my name is Katie Dickinson Schultz. I'm with the Office of the Appellate Defender, and I represent Van Collette on appeal. Judge Tyson's recent opinion in Collette sounds like it came from 2015. Both explicitly and implicitly, it continues to perpetuate the mantra that Rule 21 somehow limits the Court of Appeals' discretionary authority to grant writs of certiorari. Although it may have used the words Ledbetter and Stubbs, its undertone is clear. Rule 21 is still a gatekeeper of jurisdiction. Colette 2 is the newest version of the Ledbetters, and it must be corrected by this court again. So the state and I essentially agree on what the state of the law is post Stubbs, Thompson, and Ledbetter. You don't look at Rule 21 to determine discretionary authority. You look at statutes, and you do two things. One, you look at whether there are any statutes out there that explicitly authorize a party to seek discretionary review. And you look to see whether there's any limitations in that statute. I assume you mean certiorari and not... Oh, my gosh. What did I say? Well, I think you used the word discretionary review a couple of times. I'm sorry. I'm trying, not to, get, I'm trying not to get confused. Sorry about that. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Yes. Um, so you look at whether there are any limitations in the statutes as well. And then you look at whether there's any statutes out there that chip away at the broad authority under 7A-32C that allow the Court of Appeals to look at what the trial courts do and supervise. So if we look at the statutes at issue in Mr. Collette's case, there are two authorizing statutes. First, there's 15A-1444E that says if a defendant isn't appealing something as a matter of right under A1 or A2 of the statute, or if the defendant isn't appealing something as a matter of right under 15A-979, he has the right to request certiorari review of the issue. Not only that, we have 15A-979B, which says an order finally denying a motion to suppress is appealable, even if the defendant pleads guilty. So right there, we have two statutes that contemplate the exact thing Mr. Collette is trying to appeal and tells him how to do it if he doesn't have an appeal of right. Furthermore, there's nothing out there in any of the statutes that take away from the 7A-32C broad authority. Where the state and I essentially disagree is to what this Collette opinion actually says. Um, the concurrence and I agree that if you look at what the opinion says, it doesn't properly acknowledge, accept, or apply Ledbetter and Stubbs, even though it was supposed to on remand from this court. Um, and first of all, there are a couple places in the opinion that are not entirely incorrect. But the problem is those few places are completely surrounded by places that perpetuate this pre-Ledbetter state of the world where Rule 21 somehow controls jurisdiction. 
Let me ask you yes. uh, what you think of the concurring opinion. Um, well, I think the concurring opinion says that Rule 21 has no impact on the court's exercise of jurisdiction with regard to issuing writs of certiorari. And I do agree with that. Um, I disagree with the concurring opinion's uh, conclusion that the petition should be denied because it doesn't have merit. Um, but I do think Judge Emmons' concurring opinion does point out some of the flaws in the majority opinion, including the idea that Harris and Pimentel, or excuse me, State v. Harris and State v. Pimentel are somehow not only good authority on this issue, but also binding on the issue. Did the concurring opinion apply Ledbetter and Stubbs as we gave the Court of Appeals an opportunity to do? I think it did. I think it said that the exercise of discretion and under the authorizing statute of 15A-1444E, uh, the court has authority to grant the writ of certiorari. Judge Emin just concluded that she would not. But in terms of your construction on behalf of your client that the majority looked at Ledbetter and Stubbs one way and the concurring opinion looked at it another way in terms of what we empowered the Court of Appeals to be able to do, did the concurring opinion do it in the way that was contemplated by your client more so than the majority did? Uh, yes, Your Honor. I think it did. It recognized that the court had authority to grant the petition if it so wanted to. Um, and I, the only thing I disagree with is I'm not sure that I agree that the majority opinion even contemplated Ledbetter and Stubbs very much. Um, and I'll get into that in a minute. Um, so when you look at this opinion, the places that are contrary to what it was supposed to do on remand aren't always explicit. But when you pull back and look at the language of the opinion, it becomes clear what the majority opinion is doing. And it's continuing to treat Rule 21 as if it's a statute. Um, for example, on page three of the slip opinion, the majority talks about State v. 2. And State v. 2 is just where this court reiterates what was said back in 1979 with State v. Reynolds uh, as to when a defendant has an appeal of right from a motion to suppress after pleading guilty and when certiorari review is required. So that case is not entirely applicable to the issue at hand for Mr. Collette. Um, and right after that, there's a sentence. And I, mean, it's, I mean, at most, State versus two, at least as I read it, says that there's no appeal of right, and it gives some reasons why there's no appeal of right, and you can decide what you think about the applicability of those reasons in, in exercising discretion about whether to grant uh, a certiorari petition. Yes, It's Your relevant Honor. to that extent, isn't it? Yes, Your Honor. Two and Reynolds both looked at the language of 15A-979B and said there were two different avenues for appeal for somebody who wants to appeal the denial of a motion to suppress after pleading guilty. Um, so I wouldn't say, talking about two is not sort of what I see, what I see as problematic. Um, I just don't see it as being particularly relevant to this issue. Um, Mr. Collette is not contending that he has an appeal of right. And right after this discussion on two, um, the majority has this sentence where it says, when a defendant pleads guilty without notifying the state of his intent, defendant hasn't failed to take timely action, and the court is without authority to grant the writ of certiorari. In support of that sentence, the majority cites State v. Pimentel, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. 
Um, but right there, this is starting to feel like very pre-Leadbettery, unleadbettery language, um, where as if Rule 21 is somehow controlling the authority to grant a writ of certiorari. Not only that, but there's also this conflation of the two requirement of when a defendant has an appeal of right under 15A-979B and when he has to request certiorari review. So there's these two different things in this sentence that are being, there's a new rule being engrafted when the court says something like this. On page four, the majority writes and cites to rule 21 and says writs are only allowable if the defendant's right to appeal has been lost for failing to take timely action. And again, that's the exact opposite of what Ledbetter, Stubbs, and Thompson are saying. We don't look to Rule 21. We look to what the statutes say. And then on page four, uh, there is a quite strange discussion of prior Court of Appeals cases, which ones are good, which ones are bad. And again, none of that discussion includes prior opinions from this court. But anyway, the majority first goes after this case, State v. Davis. And the majority says this is wrongly decided. Um, the majority calls it a fractured case with no value. So when I got this Colette opinion, I thought, well, I've got to go see what State v. Davis says because it must be bananas. And, and when you go look at State v. Davis, all it says is the defendant there lost her motion to suppress. She pled guilty. She didn't say anything to the state or nothing was on the record that she intended to appeal. Um, and then she requested certiorari, and the Court of Appeals in one sentence was like, all right, fine, and reviewed the issue. And it's funny because in Davis, it wasn't a winning issue. The court still affirmed the denial of the motion to suppress. But the court just found like there was enough there to warrant certiorari review. Um, then, if you go look at the other cases that the majority enthusiastically reaffirms in Pimentel and Harris, you see a very different state of the law. Um, and at first should be noted that even the state conceded in its brief that these cases contain incorrect assertions of the law. That's on page 15. And Mr. Klett and I agree. Um, in, in Pimentel, the, courts of, excuse me, the Court of Appeals held, if there's a conflict as to just jurisdiction between the appellate rules and the statute, the rules control. And because the defendant in Pimentel's petition, because that petition didn't allege one of the three categories in Rule 21, the court did not have discretionary review at all to grant the petition for writ of certiorari. Harris, which came out several years later, it didn't really have its own analysis in there, but it cited back to Pimentel and it said, hey, you see that case? That's why we don't have discretionary authority to do this. So this idea that Pimentel are excuse me, Pimentel and Harris are good and Davis is bad are implicit places where the majority opinion is continuing to perpetuate the idea that Rule 21 somehow controls, and it doesn't. In actuality, Davis was fine. Pimentel and Harris are the ones with all the issues. Um, right after this discussion, the majority says that not only do Pimentel and Harris correctly apply the law, but they are binding on the court. Um, and, and that simply is not true. They're certainly not binding on the court given this court's intervening opinions in Ledbetter, Thompson, and Stubbs, which is what the court was supposed to consider on remand the first time. Um, I think it's interesting in the Collette opinion, 
Uh, the majority seems to act like Pimentel was the first time the court was faced with this situation of what to do if a defendant pleads guilty um, after losing her motion to suppress and wants to appeal it without telling the state. And that's just simply not true. So as, as I just mentioned, in 1979, this court looked at 15A-979B and interpreted it as having two different routes of appeal for a defendant. One is appeal of right, and the other is an appeal via certiori of the motion to suppress. Um, and in Reynolds, this court concluded that because the defendant hadn't told the state of his intent, uh, that y'all were going to have to grant cert anyway to review the issue. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure, um, and I think maybe Justice Servan was uh, maybe alluding to this, I could be wrong, that logic of interpreting 15A-979B as having two avenues of appeal, I'm not quite sure that language survives after Thompson, Stubbs, and Ledbetter. Um, you know, the language of 15A-979B is clear that an order finally denying a motion to suppress is appealable, even if the defendant pleads guilty. In Reynolds, when this court initially looked at that and interpreted these two different avenues, that was judicially created uh, jurisdictional rules that I'm not sure survive. But I'll, I'll say this, resolution of that issue is not important for resolution of Mr. Collette's issue. Um, but what I do know is that rule in Reynolds should not be expanded to include certiori. And what I mean by that is a defendant's right to request certiori and the court's authority to grant that is not limited are contingent on the defendant given prior notice of appeal to the state. Also, at the time Pimentel came out in 1981, the Court of Appeals had also decided State v. Walden. And it was the same sort of facts as here with Mr. Collette. And the, the Court of Appeals then just granted cert and reviewed the issue. So I guess my, my point is, is that Pimentel wasn't even correct at the time, and it's certainly not correct now, after this court's opinions in Thompson, Stubbs, and Ledbetter. So right after this long discussion of cases, um, there are places where the majority opinion explicitly contradicts what this court has said in other opinions. Um, ultimately, uh, the majority holds that because Mr. Collette's petition wasn't filed as a result of untimely action, it must be denied. That was on page eight of the opinion. And that was, the end, that was the end holding as well. Um, the Court of Appeals exercise of discretion is not limited by Rule 21 anymore. And the problem with this Collette opinion is it's not as if um, the vast majority is correct and there's just a few places that need tweaking. The problem is, is that the opinion as a whole continues to perpetuate mis misstatements of the law even though it was already been remanded one time back down. Let me ask you about that. Yes. And there's a, after the discussion of um, Davis and um, two and some other cases, Pimental, yes. the, the Court of Appeals says the following, other than recognizing this court's appellate jurisdiction to exercise our discretion on a petition for writ of certiorari, nothing else in the holdings of either Stubbs or Ledbetter bears on the issues before us in this appeal. Yes. Okay. What do you make of that? I, I know. It's confusing. And, and what, if anything, do you recommend that this court do to clarify the situation, mm. if need yeah. be at this point? Yes. 
that seems to go a bit far to say that that's the only thing it does. That is what Ledbetter, Stumps, and Thompson say, that if a statute says you can request certiorari review, then the court is bound to that, not with Rule 21. The problem, Justice Hudson, is that sentence is then bustrous, excuse me, it's surrounded by places where he then, the majority then says that Rule 21 controls, and then says Harris and Pimentel are still right on this issue when they are directly contradicting what, what that one sentence says. Um, well, I mean, given that we've said this now a couple of times, yes. Um, what, if anything, do you think would be helpful clarification on this point? I know. I thought the remand order <laughs> was very helpful. <laughs> um, unfortunately, you know, this is what we got. Um, and this is a strange situation, and I've asked my colleagues, you know, what am I supposed to tell the North Carolina Supreme Court? Because they're going to ask me, what are we supposed to do? And I think it just needs to be more explicit. Um, I don't understand how what you what y'all said the first time wasn't explicit enough but the problem is this is what came out of that so if that means the court um, has to acknowledge the authorizing statutes and reiterate again rule 21 doesn't control i, I i'm not quite sure what the end product is i guess do, do, and I do, do we need to overrule pimental and harris with regard to those issues i do I think that when I look at Pimentel and Harris, um, because there is this idea, um, the state talks about this, that somehow these cases are still instructive. The problem is, is that with regard to this issue, there is nothing instructive in there. They are completely incorrect. Um, and I think in some ways they have to be overruled um, because I have a feeling that if they're not, and if this court just remands again, you guys are going to, I'm going to be knocking on your door again in a couple months asking for more review. And I don't know what the solution is to that. Well, you, you mentioned those two cases, Pimentel and Harris. Are there other opinions of the Court of Appeals that are relied on in the face of contrary authority from this court, in your view, that we should overrule? Those are the main ones we tend to see and mainly Pimentel, because, for example, in the earlier Collette opinion from back in 2018, Harris was the case cited as being controlling. Um, and those are the ones we do see pop up, in our office at least, as being cited to as saying, we don't have authority in the first place. Um, there might be some other ones out there, but those seem to be the main culprits that we're running into. Thank you. Um, I think it's also important to note that um, in its brief, the state contends that the uh, Court of Appeals denied the petition not because uh, it didn't have discretion to uh, allow the petition, but because the petition didn't have merit. And it is true, I disagree with that, but it is true that at one point in the opinion on page 7, um, there is this statement that, uh, that the petition doesn't have merit. But I, if that was true, if the state was, or excuse me, if the Court of Appeals was really denying this because they didn't think it had merit, why talk about Harris and Pimentel? Why, why even talk about two? You don't need to. That's not an issue in this case. Why is Rule 21 being cited at all? Because it has no bearing. 
Um, and I think that's the reason is that's exactly what the majority wanted to do, purportedly acknowledge what it was supposed to on remand, um, and then go and do just the opposite in its opinion. You, you don't disagree that the concurring opinion closes with this language that defendants petition for writ of certiorari should be denied in our discretion, uh, referencing that she's agreeing with the majority. I, it's in the last paragraph of the Yes. Uh, yeah. Oh, yes. Sorry. I don't know if I agree with her statement that she's agreeing with the majority there, because I think the majority never really looked at the underlying claims um, at all. I think the majority denied the petition because it wanted to continue to act as if Rule 21 controlled, and because the petition didn't fall within one of those categories, it didn't have discretionary authority. Well, the majority does say, and granted, they say a lot of different things, but uh, in the next to the last paragraph, no, let's see, third paragraph from the end, right after what Justice Hudson read, it says the fact this court possesses the jurisdictional power to allow in our discretion does not compel us to do so under defendant's burden to show prejudicial reversible error and the clearly unmeritorious facts before us. Uh, that at least seems to say that the majority says they possess the power in their discretion to allow. Yeah, that one sentence, there is a, a hint that it was doing the right thing. <laughs> the problem is reconciling that sentence with the rest of the opinion is just all but impossible. And you're right, discretion is a, a wide open concept, right? It's very hard on our side of the aisle to say, that a court necessarily abuses discretion. But what we do know is that a court abuses its discretion if it says it doesn't have discretion in the first place, and it does. Um, but yeah, that, that's the problem with this whole opinion, is there's little, you know, amuse-bouches of, of things being maybe a little correct, and then, but the meat and potatoes of this opinion is not doing what it was supposed to do on remand. So let me make sure I understand your assessment of the concurring opinion. I know in response to Justice, Chief Justice Newby's question earlier, you said that two wasn't really relevant. Uh, but she also discusses Pemintal and Harris, mm -hmm. and then ends by sending that these prior decisions are all instructive. And I take it from your sort of the, the your overall argument today that you don't necessarily agree that those decisions are instructive in this situation. In this situation, no, Your Honor because those opinions explicitly say that the court doesn't have authority to grant the writ um, in, in somebody like Van, or Mr. Collette's position. So I disagree with the concurrence with regard to that point. Um, I don't, you know, in the state's brief, the state contended that these cases were instructive, but didn't really say why. Um, you know, if there's something a court can later cite to in those opinions that doesn't talk about Rule 21 or talk about that the court doesn't have authority, then I don't know if I can say automatically that's, that's an abuse of discretion. But with regard to this issue, I do disagree with the concurrence on that issue. Okay, thank you. And I think if there's no further questions at this time, I might save the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. Okay. You're from the FLE.
Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Nick Sanders. I'm an Assistant Attorney General with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this matter. So the sole issue, as you've heard today before this court, is whether the Court of Appeals denied defendants' petition for writ of certiori under a misconception that it lacked authority to do so under Rule 21. Now, before I discuss why there was no such misconception in the majority opinion, I would like to begin with a brief recap of the procedural history in this case, because I think it's important to understanding the Court of Appeals' rationale in this latest opinion and its evolution of thinking and during all the times this case has gone back and forth between that court and this court. So defendant in this case was charged with a multitude of offenses. He filed two motions to suppress, both of which were denied, and he subsequently entered into a plea agreement with the state wherein he would plead to just two counts of manufacturing methamphetamine and in exchange the state would dismiss the remaining charges, which included such charges as trafficking and methamphetamine. Um, in striking this deal, defendant at no point during plea negotiations gave the state or the trial court notice that he intended to appeal the denial of those motions to suppress. So there's never been a dispute in this case that defendant lost his right to appeal the denial of those motions to suppress. So on his first direct appeal, defendant filed a petition for writ of certiori seeking discretionary review of, the, of that order, specifically from the 2014 searches. Uh, the Court of Appeals in that first opinion, Colette 1, explicitly stated that it, did, quote, did not reach the merits of defendant's argument, end quote, regarding the suppression issue because it lacked authority to do so. And then that brings us to this court's first order, which remanded for reconsideration in light of its opinions in Ledbetter and Stubbs. But, but both of which had already been decided by the time of the first opinion in this case. I believe so. I believe Ledbetter was 2018, and I think that's also when the first opinion was. Um, I believe that is correct. Okay. Yes, Your Honor. Um, so in this new opinion, after it reconsidered Stubbs and Ledbetter, the Court of Appeals followed those decisions by exercising its discretion to deny a meritless petition for writ of certiori. And can you point to anything in this opinion that says regardless of what Rule 21 may say, regardless of what Pimenthal may say, regardless of what Harris may say, taking none of that into consideration, we deny this petition? Not explicitly. The Court of Appeals majority did not go through the changes in its thinking between its first opinion and the second opinion and discuss um, Rule 21 in that way. But I don't think it's necessary because... Well, but, but, you know, it, it is, it, the state concedes, doesn't it, that it would be error for the Court of Appeals to say because, or to consider in any shape, size, or fashion the fact that this case doesn't fit within any of the three categories listed in Rule 21, that fact means we have to deny this petition. The state, if they did any of that, the state concedes it would be error. Absolutely, Your Honor, because Ledbetter made explicit that when Rule 21 does not have an example, basically, of when cert can be allowed, when that's not present in Rule 21 and it's not applicable to that situation, this court has said Rule 21 is essentially irrelevant, and then the Court of Appeals is to look to the common law to aid in their discretion. But I would completely agree with that. If the Court of Appeals explicitly said, under Rule 21, we have no basis to allow this petition, if it said that, that would be error. But Well, but it says this court has this page me I'm not going to go back through everything that Ms. Dickinson Schultz went through Dickinson Schultz went through but it says this court is repeated this is on page three this court is repeatedly held that when a defendant pleads guilty without first notifying the state 
of the intent to appeal a suppression ruling, the state, quote, has, fail, has not failed to take timely action, close quote, and, quote, this court is without authority to grant a writ of certiorari, close quote. Yes, Your Honor. The and then it, then it goes on to say that, uh, and I'm just going to skip over some of it, but it, then it says, uh, under well-settled precedents, we disregard Davis and follow two Pimentel and State versus Harrier, Harris as the earlier binding precedents, which seems to me to say we're following those because we have to, because they're binding, right? Uh, I would say it requires looking more into what these decisions actually said. So the Court of Appeals relied on three decisions. You have two from this court, and then you have Pimentel and Harris from the Court of Appeals. As my colleague said, in two... And, and I, don't, does anybody, I don't think anybody denies or disagrees with the idea that two holds that there's no appeal as of right from the denial of a suppression motion in the context of a guilty plea uh, when no notice is given to the court that the defendant intends to seek appellate review before uh, they've got to give that notice before the plea's entered. I mean, I don't think anybody disputes that's the law. No, Your Honor. Okay, I mean, I'm, I hope I'm not wrong about that. No, that is correct. That, too, as the concurrence has pointed out, as my colleague has pointed out, and as I've pointed out, too, does actually not relate to a petition for writ of certiori and this Rule 21 issue. But I have the flip side of that argument. I think that because it doesn't <coughs> deal with Rule 21 and this specific issue, the Court of Appeals, by relying on that in conjunction with these other cases, would demonstrate that it's actually not relying on the misconception in those other two cases. Because what you have to look at is when the Court of Appeals says we're looking to two Pimentel and Harris, what do all three of these cases have in common? Two has nothing to do with Rule 21. Right. Two sets up this rule of waiver, and then Pimentel and Harris, that is correct. They do contain an incorrect statement of law now after Ledbetter. But they also have other discussions of why this rule was created in the first place. But the question, I guess, on, for my purpose is how do we know from this opinion that the Court of Appeals didn't treat Pimentel and Harris as binding and act on the basis of those opinions. Because if they did, that's error, right? I agree that is error, but I don't, but the reason why I believe that the, that the state believes the Court of Appeals majority did not rely on those incorrect statements of law is because it would never have looked to the merits of the petition if it found that Rule 21 somehow bound them again. Because if you look to that first opinion that the Court of Appeals did back in 2018, they never talked about the merits. In fact, they explicitly said they weren't going to look at the merits. So after this court's decision, they go back and then they say this petition doesn't have merit and that Ledbetter, Stubbs, and Thompson do not mandate the Court of Appeals to allow every petition for writ of certiori even when it doesn't have merit. So if the Court of Appeals was finding that misstatement of law binding still, it would have never included that additional language on remand about the merits of the petition. Well, why, why would it say unless Q, which I think we can all agree is Correct. not problematic, Pimentel and Harris's holdings are overruled. This court is bound to follow them in future cases. If those cases, Pimentel and Harris, hold that under Rule 21, we cannot grant cert. They're saying they're bound by those cases. Well, I would contend those misstatements of all have already been overruled. This court, I agree, this if, court does if not. That, if, if that's the case, why does the Court of Appeals cite them and rely on them? Because there are other parts of those two decisions. And I completely agree with both this court and my colleague that this decision, with all due respect to the Court of Appeals, is not abundantly clear or does not completely explain every part of its decision. I agree with that. But I think you have to look to what these other decisions say to see 
what, why the Court of Appeals had before it Ledbetter and Stubbs, and it issued this opinion. So it knew of Ledbetter and Stubbs. So we have to look to the decision and be like, and basically see how the Court of Appeals decision would be correct. And so when I look to these three cases, they discuss things other than this Rule 21 issue. Two, as you mentioned, doesn't have anything to do with Rule 21. It sets up this rule of waiver. If you look to Pimentel and Harris, they do have incorrect statements of law, but they also discuss at length, the, or at least Pimentel does, and then I think Harris relies on it, the rationale of what the state loses when the defendant doesn't give notice of intent to appeal. And that's something that, even though it's part of the rationale for the rule, it's something that the court can consider in exercising its discretion to grant certiorari. But that's not the holding in Harris and Pimentel is we can't grant this because it's not in Rule 21. So to follow the case, you follow the holding, don't you? That is correct. And the, the end holding um, of those cases does have an incorrect statement of law. But there are still other parts of the opinion that resulted in that that can still be correct in the previous steps that led the court to that ultimate decision. Well, that let, me, let me follow up on that. Um, is the incorrect statement of law in those cases about the jurisdiction of the court being limited by Rule 21? Yes, yeah, or that Rule 21 somehow, if one of the bases of Rule 21 um, does not apply, then the Court of Appeals lacks authority to grant the writ of certiorari. That is incorrect. The state fully admits that. So the, the, just above what um, Justice Irvin was reading to you is in a different paragraph that says, even if two Pimentel and Harris were not binding on the issues here, and they are, within any jurisdictional discretion to allow the petition we would follow and apply their reasoning. Is that an incorrect statement of law? I would, it? I would contend and agree. I uh, um, and first, I would completely say that is the Court of Appeals does not explain which part of the decisions that they mean in this. I would look to those opinions and see the only, three, the only thing that all three of those have in common is this rationale about what the state loses when the defendant fails to give notice of his intention to appeal. So when I, absent any other explanation, when I see that all three of those cases have to deal with that, that's what the state believes the Court of Appeals majority was relying on. Well, what do you think it, the Court of Appeals meant when it says that refers to these cases and talking about within any jurisdictional discretion. Admittedly, that is not particularly clear, but it could easily be saying that those cases are defining the jurisdictional discretion of the court, and we think it's binding in, in that regard. That, that could be, Your Honor, but I think you can also read it in the other way. And I will, con as I've well, conceded if you, if here. That's what, if that's how it's interpreted, correct. that's an incorrect. That would be an incorrect statement of law. That is correct. But I think there is another way to read this Court of Appeals majority opinion, and that's that it was looking to these other cases for the rationale of what the state loses when the defendant fails to give notice of appeal in this way. That the defendant has struck an advantageous plea bargain with the state, and like in this case where he got a multitude of offenses dismissed, he got a consolidated judgment, he struck a good deal, but then decided to go back. I think this either this court or the Court of Appeals has described it as a second bite of the apple after. So even though that does set up our rule of waiver for the right to appeal, that can also be considered in determining whether certiorari should be allowed, because there is a loss to the state in that situation. To ask you the question that uh, someone else asked your colleague, what would you recommend that we do in this case so that we don't, this is, I think, the fourth case we've heard this argument in. And we've entered at least two special orders that I'm aware of that address this as well. What would you suggest that we do in order to uh, allow everybody involved to talk about something else? I, I have, 
multi-step recommendation for that, Your Honor. I think, as I've said, I think both the majority and the concurrence all were looking to the merits of the petition and that this court should simply affirm the Court of Appeals decision. However, if this Court of Appeals disagrees with what I'm saying and reads the opinion well, if, as if we, still... If we do that, aren't we inviting continued citation to Menthol and Harris on the Rule 21 point? I don't believe so, because if a court relied on, explicitly replied and said it was, or it was clear that a future court was relying on that part of those decisions, that would automatically, that would be wrong. Well, I mean, would, would, would it be helpful to overrule at least those parts of Pimentel Harris, and if there are other cases that hold the same thing, uh, at least insofar as the Rule 21 part of those hearings is concerned, would that bring clarity to the law as the state sees it? Absolutely, and I, again, I don't think it's necessarily necessarily necessary because this court's decision in Ledbetter already effectively overruled that part of those decisions. But of course, this court is free to clarify that. Of course, the, the, the concern I've got about that is we've already handed down Ledbetter, Stubbs, and Thompson, and we still get citations to these cases. And so that's why I raised the question with you about whether they need to be overruled. And as I said, the citation to those cases isn't necessarily wrong. If the citation and the Court of Appeals relies on the wrong part of those cases, then um, they've already been overturned. But if this court wishes to make explicit that that part of those decisions is no longer good law after Ledbetter, it is, of course, free to do so. But they've already been overturned in that regard. Well, given, given that the um, <clears throat> we, this case was sent back to the Court of Appeals to reconsider in light of Stubbs and Ledbetter, which had already been decided previously. Mm -hmm. And the court cites Stubbs and Ledbetter right next to the paragraph where it relies on those cases. Um, it would seem that they're determined to rely on those cases regardless. Wouldn't it? I don't think that the Court of Appeals ever explicitly said we're relying on this wrong part of Pimentel and Harris. And I say that because, first of all, that's not in the opinion. And second of all, if it was doing that, there would be no need to talk about the merits. If it was still acting under this misconception, it would have just repeated its first opinion and said we haven't looked at the defendant's merits. He doesn't have we don't have authority to look at it. We would have just had a repeat of that first one if the court was still acting under that misconception. But we don't. We have a discussion and which says that I think it... It's a little bit dismissive to say that, um, for the Court of Appeals to say that Stubbs and Ledbetter don't have any bearing on these issues. They do, but I think they do have, a, the Court of Appeals has a correct statement of law following that, that there is nothing in Ledbetter or Stubbs or Thompson that would mandate the Court of Appeals to allow a meritless petition for writ of certiorari. There's nothing that requires the Court of Appeals to correct. allow the petition for certiorari. That's correct. Um, but in the paragraph up above where the court cites to two, the first time that they cite to two Pimentel and Harris, in the last sentence where they say we apply binding precedents referring to those three cases um, and deny defendant's petition on this ground, which sounds as if in the context of that paragraph they're saying jurisdiction. And if the Court of Appeals had explicitly said that, it would be wrong. But again, I'm, and I'm sorry to repeat myself, I think if it was relying on that wrong part of those cases, there would have been no need to talk about the merits of the petition, which the majority did. At a minimum, it appears to be saying more than one thing. 
it is not abundantly clear, I will say, which thing the court is saying. <laughs> so I think it can be interpreted in multiple ways. And the fact that this court has explicitly remanded in light of Ledbetter and Stubbs, I think we have to view the opinion to try to read it in accord with those decisions. Okay, thank you. And to briefly return um, to Justice Irvin's question of what this court should do, should it find that the Court of Appeals um, relied on the incorrect parts of these pre-led better decisions. Um, so even if this court disagrees with that part, it can adopt the concurrence in this case. That is also a remedy. Um, I, at a minimum, it is clear that each judge on this panel looked to the merits of defendant's petition and found them, that it was meritless. So even if, the, even if this court holds that there is extraneous um, discussion in the majority opinion about Pimentel and Harris, um, this court can still either adopt the concurrence or it can um, or it can write its own explanation of why if the Court of Appeals did rely on that in a wrong way, that was wrong, but at a minimum we have three judges looking to the merits of the petition and finding that it was meritless. And if there are no further questions, the state respectfully requests that this court affirm the denial of defendant's petition for writ of certiori. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. I'm going to be very brief. So the state is contending that there's somehow an evolution of thinking between Colette 1 and Colette 2. I completely disagree. I don't think there's any evolution at all besides maybe the magical words of Ledbetter and Stubbs appearing in the second one. Um, if you look at the earlier 2018 opinion, the court relies on the case of Stavey Harris for the proposition that it can't, grant a th it can't grant the cert. Do you know where else Harris is cited is in this most recent Collette opinion. Um, I think somebody asked about, aren't we opening ourselves up if we affirm this case to somehow getting more sites to Pimentel and Harris? Absolutely. What I think you're also doing is that this is a published opinion. So we're also opening ourselves up to getting more sites to Collette too. Um, which is wrong. And frankly, when I go and look at Harris and Pimentel, especially Harris' case, there's nothing else there that we can point to that says that survives. The whole premise of those cases is that Rule 21 controls jurisdiction. So if there are no other questions, um, we request that this court vacate the Collette opinion once again and remand with maybe, maybe some more clarification uh, on what to do on remand. Thank you all. Thank you, counsel. Thank you both. All right.